Well, I hope you've been here the last couple of Sundays, and if so, you know that we have been in Proverbs now, and we're 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 kind of moving quickly through the book. We're not spending, uh, you know, we're not doing every single verse in Proverbs as we as we do this summer series. We're calling it our summer of wisdom, uh, but we're we're trying to pull out some some key issues that will last us the summer. Ways that we can practically say, what does it look like to seek after the wisdom of God? What is the wisdom of God? And that was the first week that we were here. We we talked about the fact that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what that meant, of course, was that if to fear God is to acknowledge Him as the Holy One. He is the Holy One. He alone is the Holy One. And, and that we don't have eyes to see all things. Our eyes are clouded. Our eyes are, are, are limited. Our eyes are sinful. That we need the heavenly perspective. We need to ask the Lord for His wisdom. So to fear Him is to acknowledge Him as the Holy One and also to then acknowledge that we, we need His wisdom. And then the second week, we kind of, kind of a progression. Then the second week was then, what does it look like to seek after it? And we, we, we talked about there in chapter two that the Father wants us to seek after Him and after His wisdom like it's treasure, like it's silver. There's a, there's a call there for us to step into our sanctification. God, you have given us this wisdom. You've provided everything we need in Christ, but you are asking us to, to step into it, to pursue it. And now today in chapter three, that progression of thought will continue on and to say then, well, what is it, what does it look like as we step into it and we pursue? Ultimately, what are we being called to do? And it's this, it's to learn to trust him. To learn to trust him. And that's what this passage is all about. Let me, let me put up for you on the screen kind of the main idea of the, of the passage this morning. It's that wisdom understands that the good life, and, and by good life, it's this, this life that God has intended for us. It's the life of, of, of understanding the wisdom of God. Wisdom understands that the good life is obtained by listening to God over all other voices and casting ourselves upon Him with full-weighted trust, even when it seems risky to do so. Listening to God over all other voices and casting ourselves on Him in full-weighted trust, even when it seems risky to do so. So let's look down at the text and see how that main idea emerged. And look at that. Our first point this morning is that there is a peace that only God gives. And it's found in the first four verses here of the text. Again, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now let's talk about that, that first couple of verses there. He, he's, he's giving us this incentive, right? He's asking us to, to listen to what he has to say, to not forget his teaching. And the incentive here is, is life. It's length of days. It's, it's this promise of, of good life and ultimately of peace. And that's an incentive that I think everybody wants, right? We all want to live a full life. We, I mentioned this verse in week one and came to it and said it's, it's not necessarily a literal thing. He's not promising us that, you know, we're going to have long year. We're all going to have our 90th birthday if we remember his commandments. So it may not necessarily be a quantity promise, but it's definitely a quality promise, right? It's a quality of life. 
And we all want that. We all want to have peace. The word peace here is the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word you've probably heard before. It's a word that conveys wholeness. It conveys completeness and soundness. It, it, it conveys health and safety and prosperity. And it, and it brings with it this implication of permanence. So it's a very, it's a very full-throated word of peace. It's, it's, it means so much. It means all of the things that we would understand as, as security and as wellness. It's this well-being that has this, again, uh, 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 stability to it. And we all want that. And it's obvious that we all want that because people are willing to spend billions of dollars and countless hours of effort to pursue that goal. We see it all around us. It's, it's what most every TV commercial is promising you, right? Spend money on this and you'll have this shalom. You'll have this peace. You'll have this security. You'll have this well-being. Most people are willing to sacrifice, I would say, anything and everything for this pursuit of whatever we think will point to the source of our shalom. I think it's fair to say this is the number one pursuit of humanity. And I think it's also fair to say this. It's a worthy pursuit. It's a worthy pursuit. This is what the Father wants for us. In the second century, the, the, the famous Bishop Irenaeus once said this. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And I, I, I actually love that quote because what he's saying here is that, that God created us in his image. We are image bearers, right? We are the ones that, that are supposed to, to fill the earth with the image and the glory of God and the way that we'll do that best. God is glorified best when we're fully alive, when we're fully living out what we were created to be. This pursuit of shalom is a pursuit back to this God. What have you intended for us? What is real peace? God wants this for us. And it's here that he tells us where we'll find the source of this life. He says, you'll find it when you listen to me. When you listen to me. That's what verse 1 here is saying. Listen to me. It's, it, he's saying, pay attention to what I have to teach you. Pay attention. And it's an important thing for us to be reminded that we've got to pay attention to him because the reality is we're all listening to someone or something. We're all listening to someone or something in our pursuit of shalom. The question is, what are you listening to? Who are you listening to? What voice are you paying attention to? And here's the follow-up question, the, the ultimately important follow-up question is it working? Is it leading you to shalom, to peace? When Solomon here writes, let your heart keep my commandments, the word keep here means to guard. He's saying we, we, our, our hearts are like little vaults. We've got, to, we've got to guard the words of God because there's a million other voices. There's a million other voices trying to rob you of that peace. What, what the Father is, is desiring of us is that we would have the same attitude that the Apostle Peter exhibited. Remember when he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's, that's someone who's paying attention. 
Where else could we go? You've got those words. Your life. You're the source. Or the words of Asaph in Psalm 73, which was referenced last Sunday. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's, that's what the Lord is seeking after here. That's what Solomon is writing to his son and saying, that's your peace. Guard those words. Listen to the Lord. Pay attention to Him. And again, there's a million voices trying to steal that attention. There's a million voices trying to steal our affection. And the Bible continually refers to those voices. You say, what, what, what voices? They're, they're idols. They're the false objects of worship that are just constantly all around us and, and vying for our attention. Tim Keller, in his book Counterfeit God, defines an idol like this. He says, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And this, I think, is a really important quote here. He says, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that we seek to give us what only God can give. It can't really give. But we're looking for it to do that. It's anything that we look at and say with our hearts, if I, if I have that, if I obtain this, then my life will have meaning. Then I'll know I'll have value. Then I'll know I'm significant. Then I'll know I'm secure. Then I'll know I've arrived. And there's a million things that we would we'd put in that position to say, that's, that's the thing that'll give me that sense of arrival. And idols, whatever you look at and say, that's my hope. And if we seek after our shalom in an idol, what we find is that it never works. It never works. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. If you think your career is your ticket to achieving shalom, if you think it's your ticket to achieving the good life, and many of us do, right? You, you, you could say, I, I could attach my, my career ambitions to that. I can attach my financial ambitions to that. If I just had this level of financial security, if I had just this level of, 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 uh, of uh, career you know, ladder climbing. The, the reality is this. We'll never enter any kind of rest because we're literally working for our salvation. Or maybe, and this, this is a, another common one, if, if we think that, you know, if getting married is, that's, that's my, that's my goal, then I'll have arrived, or, or, or if I have kids, if I have a family, then I'll have that sense of security or arrival, we'll be ultimately disappointed again because our family will fail us. They'll break our hearts. See, it, idols are usually good things that we somehow elevate into God things. Again, we're looking for that thing to provide my sense of security or hope or shalom, but they're deceiving. They promise everything in the way that we conceive them in our minds. They promise everything, but they deliver nothing. Ray, Ray Ortland points this out. He says, an idol, if you obey it, will break its promises. If you fail to obey it, obey it it'll punish you. 
So here the Father is saying to us, look, there's a million other voices vying for your attention, vying for your affections, but they can't bring you peace. They can't deliver freedom. And the reason for that is they're not, they're not the Father. They're not me, he would say. I am the source of peace and freedom. I am the voice that can lead you to length of days and years of life. Listen to me. And we got to remember here, he's, he's talking to his own children here. This is a message for Christians. This is a message for believers. This is not about finding or obtaining salvation, but rather it's about living in light of the salvation that we've already been given in Jesus Christ. The question here is that, that, we're, that, we're, that we're being forced to ask is, is, are we realizing the fullness of life that is available to us in Christ by guarding his commandments, by not forsaking his teaching, by not letting all of those other voices crowd out what he has so graciously given to us? Look at verse 3 and 4. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The key here is, is this phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness. It showed up in Psalm 85 that I read earlier when we were praying together. And it shows up in another very important place that helps us understand what, what is he getting at here when he says, don't let this thing forsake you. It actually refers to God himself. This points us back to Exodus 34, verse 6, where God declared his name to Moses. Do you remember that scene? He passes by and he declares his name, and this is what he said. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I, I think Solomon has that, that the name of God in mind here. Who God is, in other words. And he's saying to his son, don't let that forsake you. Uh, another way of saying that is, 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 is remember what we can count on about who he is. What can we count on? This is what we can count on. That he's steadfastly loving. That he's faithful to us in Christ. Just as he promised he would be. Listen to this one who's promised. And you know this about him. You know who he is. He is faithful to you. He is steadfastly loving to you. So listen to him. And let him be the one who changes you. Let him be the one who leads you to wisdom and to life. He's saying here, put him on. Bind it around your neck. I think that's another way of saying just, just wear him. Wear who he is. Wear that name around you. Write these words on your heart. This is language that's used over and again, especially in the New Testament as it refers to Christ. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. You've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 
Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 4, so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. He's saying this is the path to Shalom. This is the path to peace. It's remembering who God is. What you can count on about who He is. And wearing that. Wearing that. And we'll get to peace. How? How does wearing who God is, how does putting on Christ lead us to peace? That's where he continues. I think this is such an important point. It's the second point of the message here this morning. It's by placing our trust in Him. There's a trust that only God is worthy of. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. I think we've read that four times now since the beginning of the service. Jeremy's read it. Albani's read it. It's been read a couple different times. They're probably the most well-known verses in all of Proverbs, right? Do you, do you all know a song? There's a song that was pretty popular maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Sixpence None the Richer sang, Trust in the Lord with all your... It's a song that we remember these verses. We know them. What do they mean? What do they mean? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In every way, acknowledge Him. What does that mean? It means something radical is what it means. It really does. It means something very radical. The word trust in the Hebrew conveys the idea, I love this, of of throwing yourself face down on something. It's this idea of, of sort of being spread eagle in trust, in complete reliance upon the object of your trust. Toronto uh, won the, the NBA championship this week. So I, I was watching the games. It was a lot of fun. But one of the things that I, I, I you know, just caught as I was watching the games is, you know, they do in the, like at halftime or, or timeouts, they do these exterior sort of blimp shots over the city where the game's being played. And they're doing these shots over Toronto. And one, the, the biggest thing that you see in, in Toronto on the skyline is the CN Tower. The CN Tower, if, you, if you're not familiar with Toronto or have never been to Toronto, it's the tallest man-made structure in the Western Hemisphere. It's taller than the Sears Tower. It's not considered the tallest building because it's really just a big stick with a ball on top that you can go up to. But, but it's the tallest man-made structure. And here's the thing. When we were in Toronto a few years ago, I thought about going up to the top because of this advertisement in our hotel room that was, that was really kind of compelling and also very scary. You know, at the, at the Willis Tower, there's the sky deck. You can stand out on that. Okay, that's trust, right? Especially this week when we heard about the pop and the cracking behind the glass below. Could you imagine being in there when that happened? That's trust. I think when you go to the Hancock building and they have their tilt, which is where you stand up in the glass and, and it, it actually leans you out over, that's even more trust, I think. But the CN Tower in Toronto takes the cake because what they do is they, they offer this experience where you can go out on the top of this, this ledge 
in this ball. You're just standing on a grate that's, that's really no, no wider than these two steps. And they tie a rope to you. And you can just lean out over the edge. That picture, I think, is getting to the radical nature of what it means to trust in Hebrew. Right? You're, you're saying to that rope, my life is entirely in your hands. Right? You're saying to that rope, I am putting my all in you. I am, I am all in on you, rope. Maybe a better picture of that, because I, I just, I happened to see an old movie this week. You remember the, the old movie Adventures in Babysitting? Did you see that movie? It's shot in Chicago, and there's a scene in the movie where the, the, the Smurfit Stone Building, which is that building right by Millennium Park that has the diamond roof, the diamond-shaped roof, right? And it's got that tilted thing. There's a scene in the movie where one of the kids in the movie, you know, gets out the window and is on top of that thing. And the, the, the kid is, you know, you're, you're like doing this. You're just kind of like leaning on this window and you're holding on knowing that this is the only thing between you and certain death, right? That, that, that image came into my mind a lot this week as I'm thinking about what this word means. That's a belly flop of trust. That is, I am on you. I am holding on to you. It's radical trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I am leaning on the object of my trust. I'm depending on this thing for my life. One commentator put it, this kind of trust again involves doing a belly flop on God with the full weight of our lives. And I, I like how he, he says this. He says, with all of our sin, with all of our failure, with all of our fears, to say, if God fails me, I am doomed. If God comes through, I am saved forever. Real trust is that blunt. It's that daring. It's that simple. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. He says, real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it's either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. It's a call to radical trust in the Lord with everything. To believe there is really, there is no safer place to be. There is no safer place to be than in Christ. There's no safer place to be than within His will. There's no safer place to be than in line with His ways. It is a trust that's willing to take all of my shame, all of the things that terrify me or hold me back from full obedience to Him, and like that picture saying, I'm letting go. And I'm trusting you, God. I'm trusting you with my life. I believe that you are everything you claim to be. I believe your ways are shalom. I'm trusting wholly in you. I'm trusting in what you've promised. I'm trusting that what you say, if I line my life up with it accordingly, is life and peace. And what has He promised? He's promised in verse 6 to make my path straight. 
In other words, he's promised to lead me directly to where I want to be, to shalom, to well-being, to peace, ultimately to himself. He's promised to make my path straight to the peaceful and joyful knowledge that whatever this life brings, I can trust him to work all things for my good and all things for his glory. Again, there's no safer place to be. Do you trust him? Man, I've been wrestling with that question in my own life a lot this week. There, there, I mean, I, I, I want to say yes, I trust him. But there's a lot of times when I realize I'm not radically trusting him. Right? There's a lot of times when I, you, you stop and think, boy, I am listening to another voice right now. I'm, I'm buying this, this, this promise this deceitful promise that, that if I just get there, if I can just have that, if, if you know, I, mean, I think about this in terms of ministry all the time. What if our church was just really blowing up and, 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 and you know, people are just constantly coming to Christ and, and, you know, like that's somehow a reflection of me. Do I trust God? How do I know? Ray Ortland has some diagnostics that he put together that I think are helpful in, term, in determining my level of trust in God. And the first one, I'm only going to mention a couple of what he's, what he's brought to light, but the first one is this. Does my thinking overrule the Bible? That, that, that comes out of verse 5 here, right? Do not lean on your own understanding. Does my thinking overrule the Bible? Am I leaning on my own understanding more than I'm leaning on what God has said? In other words, when I evaluate my world and my life, when I'm making crucial decisions about what's true or false, when I'm making decisions about what's right and wrong, what's good or just or righteous or loving, do I lean on what God has said or do I let my own opinions or thoughts or feelings dictate my beliefs? Is God's Word my final authority? Do I trust Him to always be right? Always. To always lead me into what's for my good. You know, here's a, here's a great example of this. It's actually it's a great example. It's also probably a little bit of a touchy one, but it's relevant to us. It's, it's Pride Month right now, right? Next weekend, we'll have the, the Pride Parade here in Chicago. And of course, when, when that happens, it, it tends to bring up a lot of conversations. It tends to bring up a lot of media coverage about what the Bible says about sexuality. What, what are the teachings of Scripture on sexuality? So whether you're trying to figure out what you should believe about those things, or maybe whether you're immediately impacted by that issue, you're experiencing same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria yourself, the question is this, can, can you trust God on what He says about this? Can you trust God on this issue? Let me, let me highlight a couple of examples of, I think, a lack of trust. This was an article that I saw uh, in, on CNN actually Friday. And the headline is this, Tennessee preacher cop 
calls for the execution of LGBTQ people. So there's this, this uh, Tennessee sheriff. He's a sheriff. That's his day job. And then he's also the preaching pastor of a church that he started in the community. Um, and so this preacher cop, as they call him, uh, call for, calls for the execution, he says, of, of LGBT people. In a sermon at his church, he says, God has instilled the power of civil government to send the police in 2019 out to the LGBT, well, he, he says, freaks, and uh, arrest them and have a trial for them. And if they're convicted, they're to be put to death. And so when he's questioned about this, of course, as a sheriff in the town, and people are wondering about how that's affecting his ability to actually do his legal job, and uh, he says, look, that's separate from the church. And this is what he says about the church. He says, I'm the head of the church. I say who comes and goes. Those people are not permitted to join. Those people are not permitted to attend. Is that thinking in line with God's Word? Does God's Word ever say to a pastor or anybody else, you're the head of the church. You get to decide who is in and who's out. You get to decide who gets to come and hear the Word of God preached where I've placed it in a community. No. The All-Scripture Baptist Church website says it's an independent, fundamental, King James Bible-only, soul-winning church. Don't expect anything liberal, watered-down, or contemporary here. So if it's a soul-winning church, then how can he say God said homosexuality should be punished with the death penalty as set forth in Leviticus 20, so no homosexual will be allowed to attend All-Scripture Baptist Church? Soul-winning? Here's the flip side. That's one end of the spectrum. Here's the flip side. Several news sites reported earlier this week about a Washington teenager who was denied a counselor position at a Christian day camp because of his homosexual orientation. So the camp comes out and makes this statement. They said, when it became evident in the application process that he did not personally align with our statement of faith, in particular one regarding sexuality, we determined that we could not use him in this role. And the role uh, that they put up there was, a, was Bible study, teaching, counseling, and etc. In order to be consistent to our beliefs and to our mission, we felt compelled to pass on someone we truly liked in filling this counselor role. Here's what the teen said about it. He said, I was concerned because the Bible taught us that a man should not lie with another man. I kept on reading Scripture and kept on analyzing it and came to my own conclusion that since Jesus said to love and accept everyone for who they are, that's why I'm comfortable to be a Christian and comfortable to be an openly gay Christian. So again, question to be asked. Does Scripture teach us that Jesus said to love and accept everyone for just who they are? Or does Jesus come and say to all of us, repent? Right? Transformation. I'm, I'm, I've come to change. I've come to give you new hearts, born again, new lives. Does he just come to love us for who we are? Are we, are we ever wise to say, I've just come to my own conclusion about what Jesus is like? 
See, these two guys are on opposite ends of the belief spectrum, but they're two sides of the same coin. They're leaning on their own understanding. They're leaning on their own understanding. They're allowing their thoughts to overrule the teaching of God. They're both being ruled by fear. The first guy isn't willing to trust the Lord with his whole heart because he's afraid to believe that God is truly able to change people, beginning with himself. Instead, he's afraid that that sinners will somehow change him or change his church, which is why he's fighting so hard to control the situation. And the second young man is also unwilling to trust the Lord with his whole heart. He's acknowledged that the Bible says something that he's uncomfortable with about his sexuality, but he's afraid to believe that Christ is willing and able to change people for their good. Instead, again, he came to his own conclusion and he reshaped Jesus into someone who just wants to leave people as they are. So what have they both done? And again, I'll admit humility here. Again, I'm I'm not the all-seeing one. But in my estimation, what they've both done is they've invented a version of God who orbits around themselves. Instead of having the faith and the trust to throw their full weight on God and say, God, what do you have to say about this? God, how can I trust you to be in control of my life? How can I trust you to, 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 to take whatever it is that I'm, I'm afraid of or fearful of and just say, you are truth. You have my best interest in mind. You do what's good and glorifying You're the path to true peace. I love how Jackie Hill Perry has demonstrated her trust in Christ completely in this area by saying this. She says, yes, there's a reality of same-sex attraction and what that means for humanity, but there's also this other reality that God is real, that His Word is actual and is to be believed, and when it is believed, things change. I can't trust my feelings, she says, because my feelings have no authority. The Word of God is the ultimate authority in everything. And so if I put my feelings above Scripture, I'm going to be led to death every single time. Elsewhere she says this, but when the Spirit of God takes back the body that He created for Himself, He sets it free from the pathetic master that once held it captive and releases it into the marvelous light of its Savior it's then able to not only want God, but it's actually able to obey God. And isn't that what freedom is supposed to be? The ability to not do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing. I think that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in action right there. Demonstrated by a trust in God that doesn't allow fallen human thinking to override the truth of what God has said to us. So that's the first test. Do I let my thinking override what God has said? The second one would be this. When was the last time I took a risk to obey Christ? When was the last time I really I took a risk to obey Christ? Ray Ortland asked it like this. He says, when was the last time you diminished your future? Socially, financially, or professionally for His sake. Diminished your future for His sake or at least appeared to do that, right? 
It appeared that it would be diminishing to your future. When was the last time your life, your life looked obviously different from the life of someone who does not trust Jesus at all? He says, if you've never surprised an unbelieving friend by your sacrifices for Christ, it's probably because what you're living for is the same earthly payoff that they're living for. But if you trust the Lord entirely, you will also trust Him exhaustively across the whole of life. You will not be a fragmented person. You will not think piecemeal. You will, verse 6, acknowledge Him in all your ways. I remember meeting a coworker of a, of a former member of our church. Um, this person's not here anymore, so it's not it's not it's not of you, I promise. But I met I met a coworker of of someone who was a member here at one time, and when when kind of put the pieces together and realized that this this person I was meeting was a coworker of of one of our church members, I brought that up. I said, "Oh, you you work with so and so? They're a member of my church." And I'll never forget the look of surprise on that person's face and sort of the look of shock as they they said to me they go to church <laughs> and i cringed i was like uh i mean i don't i don't know what's going on in the workplace there but but here's 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 the here's the thing that that immediately makes me just evaluate my own heart am i willing to acknowledge and trust God with my life in such a way that I'm not ashamed to wear him around my neck before a watching world. Why, why that reaction from, from this coworker when they're, they're thinking, I've never seen any evidence of that in this person? Are we afraid to wear him on our necks before a watching world, even if it puts us at risk of their forming an unfavorable opinion? about us do we again do we really believe that that being in him and acknowledging his ways and obedience to what he says is really the safest place to be the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the lord is excuse me it's most liberating because it frees me from the fear of man it sets us on a path towards shalom. So we're asking again, do you trust Him? Finally, Solomon here gives us the promise for those who trust the Lord. Verses 7 and 8. It says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's such a beautiful, poetic thing to say. It's, it's also a true thing, right? But it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a beauty to the way that that's phrased. I love that. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. To, to, to not be wise in my own eyes. To say, God, I need to see what you see. I need, to, I need to follow what you say. I want you to be the lead. I want to, in doing so, then turn away from evil. I want to pursue you, God, like, like your treasure, like your silver. When we do that, there's healing for us. Healing for us. To be restored to what we were created for. Healing. 
no longer crushed, I think is what, what, that, what that probably means, right? This idea of, of being refreshment to my bones. What do my, what do my bones do? My bones are the, are the support that, that hold up my body, right? What, what crushes my bones is, is weight, it's pressure. And to be set free from that kind of weight and pressure, no longer crushed by the weight of sin. Trust me, there's healing for your bones. We say, God, how can, we, how can we know for certain that you're trustworthy? We can know for certain that he's trustworthy because he sent his son who was crushed by the weight of sin on our behalf. He, he heals our bones by taking the, the weight off of our shoulders and, and putting them on His own Son, crushing His own Son for our healing. By His wounds, you have been healed. He's saying, I, I've taken your biggest threat. I've taken the penalty of sin, death itself, off of your shoulders. I bore it myself. This is the way I've demonstrated my steadfast love and faithfulness to you. He's trustworthy. If we can trust Him with our salvation in that regard, we can trust Him with every aspect of our lives. We can belly flop on a God like that and know that to trust Him is not just simply a call to obey because He said so, but it's a call to obey and trust because He's good. He's good. And it's good for us. Lean into Him. Acknowledge Him in all of your ways. The straight path He will guide us along is the path to life and freedom in Christ. Jesus is the straight path. Psalm 16.11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 25, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble His way. All of the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimony. Main idea again. Wisdom understands that the good life is obtained by listening to God over all other voices and casting ourselves upon Him with full-weighted trust, even when it seems risky to do so. And here's the good news in Christ. It's actually never risky to do so. <laughs> it's never risky to do so. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones he will make your paths straight. So Father, we, we pray, Lord, that You would help us to trust You like a child on the roof of the Smurfit stone building is clinging to the windows. I thank You for that image in my head. It was really helpful for me this week, Lord. And I, I pray that You'd kind of burn that image into all of our heads this week to cling to You, to really trust what You say, to trust that You are good, that what You say is good, that, that it's the pathway to life for us. Lord, help us to believe that. 
with our whole lives. And help us to wear You in such a way that we're not only believing You with our lives, but we're reflecting You properly to a world around who needs to see that there is someone worth trusting. That there is a promise that delivers. That there's a God above who is good and faithful and willing to receive the sinner unto Himself and make that person whole, to give them shalom. Lord, help us to be a people who experience that so we can share it. You're good. And we're grateful. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Amen.